0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info.
1: Welcome to Political Rewind. Thanks for being with us today. If you're listening in real time, You're back to the real world, aren't you? Thanksgiving is over. The work week started uh, again today uh, for uh, most of us. Uh, We have plenty to keep you uh, uh, interested, I think, on today's show to wake you up if you've been feeling a little uh, uh, tired and worn out from uh, all the Thanksgiving activities. I wanted to uh, let me introduce our panel and then tell you a quick story. Uh he's Garrett's here because he joins us uh, on Mondays. He's a Republican strategist an advisor to Johnny Isaacson. Um, and it, he's his primary. I always say he's your kind of primary guy, yeah.
2: Uh, no question about it. I've been with him now for 27 years in different capacities, chief of staff and political advisor. So, yeah,
1: yeah. we're going to talk a about great statesman. We're going to talk about him a, a little later, later in the show as a matter of fact. Um, Uh, Charles Cook. Chuck Cook is here. He's one of uh, the most prominent immigration attorneys in uh, uh, the Southeast. Chuck, what I started to say a minute ago is we planned this show with you uh, a week or so ago. Mm -hmm. I invited you. I said, you know, we've been uh, focusing on election news for so long and a lot's been happening on the immigration front. Can we put you into the mix? So here we are, and what's in the headlines <laughs> overnight, but what's happening at the border, and we'll get to that uh, in just a few minutes. But perfect, thanks for being perfect. here. Great, great
3: joy to be again here.
1: And joining us from the uh, Washington Bureau, uh, Tamar Hallerman of the AJC, their Washington correspondent. How are you doing, Tamar?
0: Oh, man, just had some leftover turkey. I'm
1: going you know, to wake up. <laughs> oh. The fan is
0: kicking in. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you for being here, tomorrow. We're glad to have you here. There's a lot uh, that's happening up there that uh, relates to immigration and especially the wall funding, and we'll get to that during the course of the show today as well. Okay, so to start us off, um, I think by now the news that broke yesterday, uh, Mr. Cook, Is that um, the uh, uh, border patrol? There were some. We have a piece of the so-called caravan that's arrived uh, at the southern border in in Tijuana. And uh, yesterday afternoon, apparently, a small group of uh, immigrants, migrants, tried to breach one of the um, fences. Correct. That's
3: what it looked like what happened.
1: Right. And the Border Patrol responded by uh, firing tear gas. It's a it's a it's a picture that I don't think uh, I don't know what the word is. I guess I think people are going to have mixed reactions to it, of course. But to see mothers and young children kind of fleeing from tear gas uh, was a hard way to start the day today.
3: It's uh, it's it's a very third worldy look. Um, uh, to see something like that. Um, To think that uh, the Border Patrol was concerned um, enough to send tear gas uh, sends an interesting message. Uh, Why did they rush the border? I think that's really the question you have to ask. Why rush the border? Uh, Don't we have a process in place to handle people who come to the border and ask for asylum? Yeah, we've actually had that process for... I don't know, about 50 years. Uh, the problem today, though, is that the Trump administration has limited the processing of people who apply for asylum at, at border ports of entry to 100 a day, uh, saying, oh, we can't handle any more than that. Uh, Most of the people are living in Tijuana in a soccer stadium or outside of a soccer stadium in very difficult uh, situation. Uh, and I, it seems that some of, some of them, not all of them, because there appeared to be two or 3,000 there, uh, a few hundred apparently got tired of waiting and decided to rush towards the border. A monumentally stupid idea, um, and certainly any, anybody with a brain would could see what was going to happen as a result. Uh, it just doesn't look good for either side. Uh, the simple solution here is if people want to apply for asylum, they're entitled to do so. The simpler solution would be if there really was an agreement between the United States and Mexico to handle third country national processing, much like we have with Canada. And we've had with Canada for more than 15 years. Uh, so what, what that is that
1: process? It's called the
3: Safe Third Country uh, program. And so if, uh, with an agreement with Canada, for instance, if somebody is processing through Canada and wants to apply at the US border for asylum, we send them back to Canada, say, so you, you do that. And then if you decide they should come here, then we'll come here. And we do the same thing to Canada. Um, so people come to the United States and apply for asylum at the port of entry in Canada. They can either accept them or they can send them back to the U.S. And then, of course, what they do if they send them back to the U.S., we put them in jail over here. So a lot of times they end up taking them. Um, And there, of course, was a report over the weekend, at least from the Trump administration, they had an agreement with Mexico on this, which was immediately refuted by the Mexican government.
1: I think there was a step in between that, though, Heath. I think the Mexican (laughs) government did respond, saying, yes, we've reached an agreement. And the pushback was so strong that they retreated. Yeah, I (laughs) I mean, did they not know their audience? It's like, hello, they have their own internal
3: politics to deal with. So, no, it was a terrible look. It was a terrible look.
1: So, um, Heath, here's one one of the things – Today, we have the president after that tear gas incident yesterday, now once again threatening to shut down the border entirely for a period of time. Yesterday, the border crossing at just below San Diego was shut down. Right. Uh, And now he's saying, I'll shut it down permanently if we cannot handle if Mexico can't get its act together and handle these problems. So here's what's I mean, in addition to the humanitarian issues here, the political issues are interesting because for one thing. There are people who believed that all of this about the migrant caravan that Trump started talking about, you know, six weeks ago right. was an election issue. This was a way to drive his voters to the poll, uh, polls. And and yet now it comes up in the weeks after the election. It may have started as a, a campaign style issue. Now here it is facing us in a very real way.
2: Well, you know, it's one of the funny things we always say. You can't take the politics out of politics, right? Once it <laughs> became an international and a national issue in the middle of our election, you did have this group at, some points in time, it was seven to 10,000 folks. Mexico did try to mitigate Mm -hmm. that as folks moved across Mexico. Our new trade agreement, there were some parts of that trade agreement that were negotiations about handling immigration. Mm -hmm. They're not completely done yet. It did look like Mexico tried to make an attempt. Their own law enforcement officers were blocking the caravan from trying to reach the San Ysidro uh, port of Mm entry yesterday. Johnny Isaacson and I've been down there a couple of times. That particular port of entry is the busiest in the world mm-hmm. 24 lanes people trying to come through 24 hours a day but north and south right mm-hmm. a lot of commerce there and so clearly this whole episode is now a tragic example of from what I believe is 30 years three decades of a failed ability of both parties to be able to work on a national issue Ronald Reagan tried and, and he wasn't successful at it yeah. George right? W. Bush, George w. Bush Johnny I Isaacson and Saxby was almost lost his seat in the yep. US Senate over this issue by coming up with a bipartisan compromise. Yep. He
1: and Johnny Isaacson were booed at their you own remember the, state, state convention I remember that. because right. they had been working on a comprehensive bipartisan immigration reform bill. Tomorrow let me get right. you into the conversation. Uh there's a part of all of this involves the president uh, Telling the media the other day, he said it a couple times, he said it on Saturday as well, that, yes, he has authorized the troops, the professional troops who are now at the border, to use force if necessary, firearms if necessary. But we don't know that General Mattis has gone along <laughs> with it. There seems to be some dispute as to whether his defense secretary uh, is going to take what the president has said and convey that to the troops and authorize them to use weapons.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and this is an issue, I think there was a lot of hope among Democrats that when Mattis was, was nominating you know, a longtime um, Pentagon official that, that he would be able to kind of moderate some of the president's more unconventional <laughs> impulses. Um, and when you look at an issue like what's happening on the border, um, you, we've seen reports over the last few weeks about even things like um, troops on the border being able to carry guns. Um, uh, apparently, there was an order where Mattis said no, they cannot carry guns. Um, but Trump has been saying, yeah, they'll fight back, they'll do what they need. Um, and so it's been interesting, even down to the number of troops that'll that'll end up being stationed on the border. Initially, the president had said something like fifteen thousand, and it ended up only being a fraction of that. Um, so the, the give and take there has been really interesting.
1: I, I want to I want to make sure that we don't neglect to say, Chuck, that. President Trump is not the first president to send troops to the board. Absolutely not. Obama did it. Uh, I think George W. Bush also authorized... American troops to go to the border, not the border patrol, not ICE, but actual but Let's talk about what they soldiers. really did.
3: I mean, what do they really do at the border? They have no authority under the Posse Comitatus Act to enforce federal immigration law. What's they just the
1: Posse Comitatus Act? So.
3: It's a, passed by U.S. Congress a very long time ago that said the U.S. military cannot be used for domestic law enforcement purposes. All right, purposes, thank you. Period. I mean, and the president cannot change that. End of story.
1: Uh, but where but, are the but, tr- but I say this because it's easy to just attack President Trump sure and is. say how dare he no, send he's not troops. not the only one who's done this. When other presidents have done it no, too. And, Go ahead. And
3: the reason they, they, in the past they have sent troops is to support the border patrol, which is exactly what they're doing here. They're not at the San Ysidro port of entry. They're in Texas, a, a thousand miles away from where the caravan actually ended up going. And what they did was they put up about ten miles of fencing with razor wire, and they're sitting in a camp. And they've already been authorized to start going home. So the military there, but they've been using National Guard troops for a decade to build infrastructure, to assist the Border Patrol in processing uh, people, but they don't involve themselves in any actual law enforcement activities. The chance that they're going to fire bullets at anybody is zero, because they don't have their weapons and they're not authorized to do it. Uh, Plus the Border Patrol is the largest law enforcement agency in the federal government. There are almost 20,000 Border Patrol agents. They are clearly authorized to use force. That's what they used yesterday. Uh, they don't need the troops to, to do this. Uh, I think the Border Patrol is more than capable of handling a few hundred asylum seekers at the port of entry. They've been doing this for, for 30 years.
1: So, so tomorrow, uh I know that we've had a, a holiday vacation going on, but I think members are starting to trickle back in this afternoon. Are they starting to come back in? Are they back in session tomorrow? Senate's
0: in today. House is in tomorrow.
1: Okay. So... Uh, you, you should start hearing response at some point to the tear gas incident, to the president suggesting he will shut down the border. Is that beginning to bubble up at all yet? And who's talking about it?
0: <laughs> Not among our guys. I, I haven't seen much, but I can already tell you how people are going to react. The Democrats, there's going to be a ton of outrage, as we've seen with with pretty much any everything when it comes to this president. And then Republicans, there's going to be a lot of sidestepping. They they're completely aware that a lot of members of their base are strongly supportive of the president, and they don't want to be seen as um, you know impeding or, or criticizing in any way. You might see some talk about the humanitarian aspect of all of this. Um, Johnny Isaacson has has um, you know during the family separations crisis, for example, expressed alarm at the situation. But at the same time was very careful not to criticize what the president was doing Um, so we could see some of that from some Republicans but otherwise I think they'll want to steer clear of all of this
1: uh, what does this do in terms of public perception we we know that when the border separations took place there were many many people across party lines who were um, outraged Uh, distressed by seeing families broken up, when you see, as a Republican, when you see images of these terrible pictures of mothers fleeing from the tear gas with their children, how, how do you think Republicans need to deal with this? They are supportive of President Trump for the most part.
2: No, I think, look, this is this puts the Republicans in a they've got a very fine line. They have to walk right when you see these the image, whether it's family separation at you, which I think is different from what we have at the border today. But they are visual images. Um, you're going to have Republicans react saying, look, from a public policy standpoint, they're going to continue to support creating greater security at the border right I don't think it's helpful to Democrats or Republicans to have thousands of people encamped just south of our border it does look and conjures up third world type imagery mm-hmm. and in reality you know Mexico is a much better country uh, economically mm-hmm. because of what we're doing in trade than it looks like now so I think they got a fine line of, of being humanitarian and focusing on this is a this is going to be a human tragedy there's just no way about it you've already got thousands of people there. You've got questions of how many more people are going to be incentivized to follow in their footsteps and come to the border or how many people are going to be deterred either way. Uh, So they got it. But they they need to be careful in how they deal with Trump, because he is very popular within the Republican base. But I've I've said this before on the show. You can call balls and strikes here. Right. You can say we got to find a humanitarian solution with Mexico to deal with asylum seekers in a process that is orderly. Mm -hmm. and, And, you know, what I do think could be happening here politically, Bills. this is an opportunity for the Johnny Isaacsons and the David Perdue's of the world who have slightly different approaches, but they want to solve the problem. Can they call on some kind of, this would be a great opportunity for the new Democratic House mm-hmm. along with a president who likes to negotiate. Is he trying to create or or, or use this crisis, which it is, right? And can we, average, can we actually move some bipartisan legislation in, in the new Congress? I, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, but I think you're going to see a lot of Republicans trying to say we've got so, to try to solve yeah, it.
1: It, it, it tomorrow. I'm wondering about this. We are now a couple weeks past the midterms. We know that the the, the, say, the Senate is safe for Republicans, but the House has had as many as 40 seats we think now could be turned over. We've seen a certain weakness among the Republican base, and I can't help but wonder: Are we going to see a somewhat different approach? from Republicans, particularly in the House. But for that matter, with a David Perdue who's going to have to face re-election in just two years, is this one of those moments when we might see Republicans on the Hill being a a little bit more willing to speak their minds? Or are we going to fall right back into the uh, uh, situation in which people are afraid of Trump and don't want to speak out at all?
0: I think it's going to be a little more of the latter because, you know, it's D.C., there's always another election around the corner and people are already starting to think about the 2020 presidential race when when Trump is going to be on the ballot and control of Congress is going to be uh, of the Senate for sure will be up for grabs as well. Um, So people are really going to be freaked out about getting out in front of it. And, And look, it's Congress. They really need something to kind of force their hand when it comes to big issues like this. Um, we thought that would be last year, or I guess earlier this year, when, when the president moved to end the, the DACA program, and, and they couldn't come to an agreement. So I'm really skeptical um, that they'll be able to do much of anything. House Democrats are super empowered now that they have the House majority. Um, they're not going to give anything up without a huge concession from Trump when it, when it comes to something like the Dreamers or a DACA solution. You know, the- and I think... Oh, go ahead.
3: Yeah. The pressure on Democrats, though, is huge. This is immigration is one of the top three issues in this election. If they don't move some bill quickly, uh, what you're going to start seeing are protests against, Demo- against Democratic leadership all over the country, much like you saw against Obama in 2012 when he's running for re-election. That's the level of pressure Democrats have. So I think they're going to move something. If it's just DACA, if it's something to do with TPS, the, the easy, the low I would call a low-hanging fruit, they have to do something right. on
1: this. I would love, I want to get into all of that, because that will lead us into a discussion about the wall funding with the president claiming that in 11, I think they have 11 days to pass uh, <laughs> uh, their budget bill, uh, the president says he'll shut down at least a partial shutdown of government if he doesn't get some wealth funding. But let's hold on to that for just a second, because I want to go back to the kind of issue-oriented uh, uh, aspects of this, Chuck, mm-hmm. that you started us off on. Number one, you said that Canada and the United States have a much different system for uh allowing immigrants to pass e- come into either country. Mm-hmm. What did you call it again? It's called the Safe Third Country Agreement. Why don't we have a Safe Third Country Agreement with Mexico? it, it isn't, you know, it's interesting. It, it's President Trump who's saying this is Mexico's to deal with. He they have to figure well, out how to I handle it. I would tell you initially
3: why we didn't have mm-hmm. one is because Mexico wasn't a safe third country. Uh, the idea that Mexico was a safe place for migrants to be was not true. Um, and we know that uh, the migrants that come from Central America through from Mexico frequently are robbed, women are frequently raped. Uh, it's it's not a safe place in some respects. At the same time, Mexico has changed a great deal over the last 12 to 15 years. So I think the timing is actually ideal for President Trump to get this agreement. Plus, with a new president coming in, who is who's far left as far as Mexican politics are concerned, who may be willing to do something about this. You may have seen that there were I'm not going to call them there were protests in Tijuana against the migrants being there. Right. Uh, So Mexican politics is very deeply involved in this as well. So it wouldn't surprise me to see a much more aggressive Mexican government who has offered asylum, who have offered work permits, health insurance, places to live, for every one of the migrants who came through. And the ones that are left are those that said, no, I am going to the U.S. And they're going to the U.S. either because they're afraid of what's going on in Mexico or probably because they have family or other relatives or, or situations that would enable them to more successfully apply for asylum here than, than in Mexico itself. But what, what this is is a unique opportunity that I think Trump has is, is faced with the new government to actually change the nature of the immigration relationship with Mexico, because we no longer have Mexicans coming here in any numbers at all. We have net out-migration to Mexico for the last eight years. So we don't expect to ever have a million farm workers come in. That's just, it's just not going to happen ever again right. because of demographics. Let me
1: ask you a different question. Uh, the president uh, talked today about shutting down the border entirely for a period, whatever period of time. Aside from the practical impact of that, which could be staggering, I assume, Economically in terms of trade. yeah. staggering. Yeah. Uh, is the President have the power as an uh, as as an ex- the executive to uh, shut down the border that way
3: um, arguably he does okay uh, I think the court's recent Supreme Court's recent decision in what we call the Muslim ban case uh, gives the president a great deal of authority uh, in that regard uh, the question is whether Congress would stand for it especially those border state senators and 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 congressmen who whose states depend on the economic viability of the border
1: yeah, he that, yeah, that feels like an awfully uh, a threat that would be devastating to really carry out. It sounds like Trump talking.
2: Definitely for local economies, right? Southern California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. and Texas, right? The cross-border economies, if you haven't been to these cities and seen how much commerce going back and forth on an hourly basis, it's it's really phenomenal. Uh, I do think it would be a draconian measure. I do think that the latest federal judge actually alluded to it. He yes, couldn't he do what he was doing on a limited basis, but he could have the authority to shut down the entire border. This is like, the
1: ninth district case nice that the president nice. has been uh, railing again. against. Yeah. Yes. And when I
2: read that, I said, was that an open invitation for the president? He I guess he was pointing to him to do it. And sure enough, within 24 hours, the president was talking about it. Um, it I think that it might be a temporary way to force the issue right on the budget discussions right here at the end of the year and to bring attention to it. The pre- I do agree with Charles and Charles and I've worked together on this issue for 20 mm. years now. Um, I do agree that this is he has a grand bargain. And tomorrow I share with you your skepticism about the politics of it. But right now, it's actually in the president's political self-interest for 2020 and in the Democratic House's self-interest for the 2020 elections to actually get a grand bargain. But it has to be big, and it has to be more border security for uh, DACA solutions and for some kind of legalization.
1: Tomorrow, I want to give you the last word before we take a break in terms of that. Heath Garrett thinks uh, maybe this is an opportunity.
0: (laughs) I think there are already extra layers that are totally unrelated that are being added that will make it so much more difficult. Democrats today saying now (laughs) a grand deal over border, or or I'm sorry, uh, government spending will now require protections for Robert Mueller. So this makes this so much more complicated. (laughs)
1: All right. Of course it's more complicated. That's why Political Rewind is on the air four days a week now. (laughs) Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show in. And when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about on you immigration. I want to talk about how this all impacts on all of us right here in Georgia. We'll get to that in just a minute. Giving Tuesday is coming up. It's a day when people all over the world come together to give back. I'm David Green. You listen to public radio for reporting that you trust journalism that is available to everyone in your community. And when you donate to this station on Giving Tuesday, you can be proud knowing you're supporting a service that makes a difference. Donate online at gpb.org or you can call 800 222 4788. And above all, thanks a lot. Uh, Chuck Cook, uh, during the election season, one of the other things that President Trump said he was looking at doing was to end birthright citizenship. Uh, He sounds. Yeah,
3: yeah, about that. He he can't. Why? uh, Because it's federal law. Um, besides being in, in, the, in the Constitution. Constitution. Yeah. I mean, the Constitution, fourth, the Fourth Amendment, is really quite clear. This strained interpretation that uh, some of the folks in the administration come up with is, has been struck down by, this, by the courts and also struck down by Congress over the years. I mean, there's a very plain federal law that says if you're born in the United States, you're a U.S. citizen. Section 301 of the Immigration Nationality Act, period. End of story. Presidents don't get to change the law, not yet, anyway.
2: No, not yet. I think that's right. I think a lot of agreement, with most Republicans that that is a constitutional principle that you'd have to, you can change it. You'd have right. to have a constitutional amendment. We haven't had one of those in a long, long time. And there, it, what I say to some of my more conservative friends on this issue is, there are a hundred other things we can do to improve the immigration issue before we get to that. It it it, it is something that is concerning to folks because it's a huge magnet, mm-hmm. right? It's an incentive to get here illegally, to have a child, and then to use that as what. It's pejoratively called an anchor child, right? For 31 uh, for, years for, in the future yeah, for you yeah, to get citizenship. Get citizenship. But, it, you know, so I think that there's a, a lot of other things that could be done, but I don't think that's going to get changed, um, but it is definitely uh, as good political But this could be part
3: of something, you know, much broader. I I personally think birthright citizenship is an important function uh, of being an American. Uh, You're tied to the land. That's the whole theory. You're tied to the land. And it's a very ancient principle. A lot of our allies in Europe follow the same principle. Yeah, the president
1: has on a number of occasions said we're the only country that grants birthright citizenship. (laughs) I think there are about 60 that do, actually. Yeah, that's kind
3: of inaccurate. The countries that don't are countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran, uh, much of the Middle East. Uh, So you're not of citizens if you're born there, which ends up creating a lot of stateless people, which is not good for the, the overall worldwide
2: right. uh, situation. Bill, I do believe if we had a better system, right, if we had a better system, you wouldn't hear anybody talk about birthright. Yeah, so exactly I want to right. talk right. Exactly right.
1: I'd like to talk about that better system in a minute. Uh, but tomorrow, the other thing that's left hanging in the fire is DACA. The uh, Koch brothers, uh, apparently, are now looking at at uh, pressuring Congress to do something about protecting right uh, DACA rights. And uh, we don't know how far that's going to get with the new Congress tomorrow. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. We really <laughs> <don't know>. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, they're trying to get they're trying to get Ryan to do that right now in the lame duck session. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And keep in mind, right. there were they're really clearly the votes to, to push that through uh, in the last during this last session. Uh, but Trump upended that by saying, oh, by the way, yes, that's good, but I also want you to end legal immigration as we know it. Okay, Um,
1: go ahead and finish that. And that's
3: what made it hard. I mean, that's why that threw the whole bargain off, and it's also the problem of going after the low-hanging fruit. If you do the easy stuff, it means you're never going to get to the hard Hard stuff, stuff, and we have to get to the hard stuff.
1: All right, another one of the hard things, Tamar, is the president threatening to shut down, at least a partial shutdown, of the government if he does not get... His wall funding, at least a big piece of it, and what's interesting to think about is, although this is only 2018, the fact of the matter is, this is kind of the president's last shot at this be- before a Democratic Congress comes into the the House becomes Democratic uh, in the uh, in, in the winter, and the the president may not get any any more chances. So he seems willing to push this as far as he can. So that in 2019 and 20, he can say, I promised wall funding and we're going to build the wall. Where does that stand right now?
0: I mean, it's like you said. There's about eleven days before the government shuts down, and and as you mentioned, Republicans are fully aware that they have, you know, they have, this is their last kind of bit of leverage while they have unified government, um, and and I know that a lot of Republicans are sensitive to this argument that that they hear from people in their base that that the Congress didn't push hard enough for uh, the president's immigration plan and, and for this wall. Um, at the same time, they know that that in the Senate you still need democrats to cut a deal you still need 60 votes on these must pass government spending bills um which means you have to give them something that they want and right now there's a there's a bit of a stalemate democrats in the senate have so far said they're willing to give 1.6 billion to the president's border wall this year uh trump wants 5 billion um, so who knows, you know, if Republicans are willing to give on this Bob Mueller protection bill, maybe Democrats would be willing to give them $5 billion for wall funding. I don't know if I buy that. Um, but I also don't think Republicans will be willing to give them the the Bob Mueller stuff. Um, so who knows at this point? I think we're only just starting to see the contours of what that fight so, will look like.
1: So, so tomorrow, that's over the next eleven days, and I think December seventh is the cut, is the date the government would presumably shut down. But there's no reason to think that necessarily we are going to get a, a funding measure passed there it is conceivable that trump will be talked out of wanting to shut down the government and that this could linger in terms of wall funding into the into the 116th session next session the new congress
0: Totally. Been- they could pass a they could pass a stopgap and deal with it in January. Well, um, wh- Demo- Democrats on the one hand want that because they'll have more more leverage with it with the Democratic House. On the other hand, you don't really want to deal with old business while you're taking your new majority and they have all these plans that they want to do.
1: No, but we're hearing some whispers among Democrats who are coming in that they might be willing to work with the president, that they do want to find common ground. And we are hearing just the beginnings of whispers that maybe Democrats would help him find some money for his wall if they can get something worthwhile in exchange.
0: Yeah, it could be possible, but... um you know, the, the pull of the holidays is such that, that I don't think anybody wants to stay any longer <laughs> to, actually, to actually make an agreement. You know, people's mm. lives want them back at, at home. And, and I don't think necessarily people want to have this big, long, fraught fight. Like you mentioned, there are all these liberals who want a, a big, huge agreement with DACA. I don't know if the president's willing to give them that right out the bat. There are a lot of Republicans that that don't want to budge either. Um so
2: who knows at this point? All right. and Bill, you've got the situation, right, where Republicans do control the House and the Senate for a few more weeks. Any Republican funding priorities – they need to get the deal done before mm-hmm. they leave because when they come back, those aren't their priorities are not going to be, because all appropriations in begin House. in the House, yep. right? Exactly. And so there's this counter pressure. The President's talking about a big international, national issue and Republicans in the House are saying we got one more shot to get criminal justice reform and some funding priorities done here and, and it's going to be really interesting to watch how those tectonic plates uh, rub up against each other.
3: I, I, why is the money coming from Mexico? I thought money was going to come from Mexico, pray for the Wall.
1: Yeah. Okay. All well, right. Where is that money? I, I get it. That was a little cynical response. There. <laughs> 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 All right. So let me ask a question. And, and you know, you two especially, tomorrow Tamar's just a youngster compared to the years that both you, studio have worked on immigration matters. Why? We've we've talked about this in passing uh, in the last half hour. What happened? There were real efforts to pass comprehensive immigration reform. We mentioned that. the President Reagan worked on that issue. Uh, George W. Bush really came relatively mm-hmm. close to doing something during his tenure. There was a time when there seemed to be an appetite for a genuine bipartisan agreement that comprehensive immigration reform needed to happen. And it was a huge deal. Through You know, we talked about it all the time. So you 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 guys with all your background What happened? Why are we now at complete loggerheads? Why is there no reason to think this stalemate will ever end?
3: Well, think about it. The last time we actually fixed our legal immigration system, that's what we have to talk about is the legal immigration system. Illegal immigration is an issue, but it's becoming less of an issue every year, one, because of technology, and two, because of demographics.
1: Well, wait, wait. Before you go past this, Mm -hmm. it is illegal immigration that is now creating the crisis at the border, however. It it is, but the
3: numbers are so small in comparison to the levels of illegal immigration we had in the past, which is why we have a decreasing number of illegal immigrants in the United States today. Okay,
1: but wait. I'm sorry, but help me with this, Mm -hmm. because I think our listeners need to understand it as well. When I talk about comprehensive immigration reform, one of the things we talk about is a path to- What's called
3: legality?
1: If not citizenship, right? Legal status. Mm -hmm. Yes, you've come into the country illegally. Yes, you're one of 11 plus million people. We are going to find a way for you to be able to stay here legally and contribute to our economy, to right, society. Right. So and that was always a big issue. Yeah, but that's and,
3: the easy issue. That actually is the easy issue. Okay. And, no, it is the easy issue <laughs> because it's so easy to do. What you don't have is the agreement to do it among those that are elected in Congress. If 75 percent of Americans support the idea of a path to legality of some kind, well, then why don't 75% of Congress? Well, because Congress doesn't actually represent the American citizenship. It represents small portions of the American citizenship. Uh, but the, the, George H.W. Bush was the last president to fix the legal immigration system. In 1990, we, the system we have today was created in 1990 and it was a bipartisan effort and it was a terrific effort and frankly it's a pretty good immigration system but unfortunately it's based in a pre-tech economy it's not the economy we have today therefore it doesn't reflect the re- realistic needs that we have as a society in 2018 um, and so that's where the big fight remains because you're always going to have more legal immigrants come over a period of time than undocumented immigrants in the United States. Uh, So yes, they're entwined together, but the focus really is, much like President Trump, when he says, no, I want you to cut in half the number of legal immigrants coming to America, regardless of the economic impact of that, before I'll even let you have DACA. That's where the problem really relies today. But it's a problem that's fixable. I mean, there are there are bills out there from both sides that would fix it. OK, this.
1: but then that's my question, Heath, right. if why? it's fixable. Why have we got is it simply go ahead? Yeah, no.
2: I, look, I mean, it, it comes down to what we call the show political rewind for a reason. Again, we mentioned it earlier, you can't take the politics out of politics. Over the last two decades, uh, every time there's been an opportunity for comprehensive uh, immigration reform, both legally and dealing with illegal immigration, both parties at different times have on to their base and said, wait, we're going to wait till the next election, use this issue as a wedge issue, yeah. thinking that they were going to benefit from it. Let me give you an example. In 2007, Johnny Isaacson and Saxby Chan was put forward the most comprehensive border security first bill. Uh, it was designed to attract conservative uh, support in the United States Senate. Um, and so it, it had a super majority of support. However, a few Republican senators made the gamble that, no, if we have this issue in the 2008 election, we're going to do better. Mm-hmm. Boy, that was a bad gamble. That was a bad gamble. <laughs> As a of fact, it backfired. Obama became president, mm-hmm. and we got wiped out in the United States Senate elections that year because the Democrats actually use it as a wedge issue. Mm-hmm. So the next two attempts, our Democratic friend said, whoa, we don't want this issue solved. We're going to be able to use it to beat the living daylights out of our Republicans. And so what we've got to do is you've got to have the right timing, you've got to have the right president, and you got to have the right mix of kind of pressure from the country. And I agree with Tamar, I hate to agree, the, the raw politics, the complexity is like three-dimensional chess. You take one issue out of this uh, for the Democrats and they walk away from the table. Vice First, if you don't do certain things for the Republicans, they walk away from the table. Uh, like I said, there might be three months in this new Congress, right, where if Trump wants to do the art of the deal and, and salvage his presidency and help his Democratic friends, th- it might be there, but it's it, it's just raw politics. And both parties, have you. the timing's just been wrong every time we've had so a major w- bill. W-
1: while we're talking about fixing legal immigration tomorrow, we know that David Perdue, Senator David Perdue, and, and Senator Tom Cotton uh, work together, two Republicans, of course, so it's a Republican bill, to really support the president's policy, the proposed policy, which is to limit legal immigration to make it a little bit more difficult for people to come into the country legally. And that measure for quite some time was getting a lot of attention. It seemed to have a certain amount of momentum, certainly among Republicans. I heard nothing about it for quite a while. What's going on there, Tamar?
0: Yeah, I mean, efforts really froze. Um, You know, for a while, Trump kind of surprised the Democrats when he came forward and said, hey, I'll give you guys, you know, I'll legalize it with something like 1.8 million DREAMers. Chuck, I think my yep. number is correct. That's right. We'll, we'll, we'll make them citizens. Um, but you have to basically accept all of the changes in the, the Cotton-Purdue bill, Purdue bill um, which are pretty huge changes to the legal immigration system. Um, you're talking about slashing the number of refugees being admitted into the U.S. by something like 50 percent, also cutting the number of legal refugee or sorry, legal migrants by something like 50 percent as well. So I think that was just too much for a lot of Democrats to
1: swallow. It was also um, one too much oh, for Republicans
3: to swallow because there are zero co-sponsors of that bill yeah.
1: a year and a half later. Jamar, did you want to fish out by that there?
0: Well, I wanted to build off something that, that he's mentioned b- before. He was talking about how he sees a, a window of only a few months for uh, people in Congress to kind of get their act together on this issue. I think another problem that's just going to make it so much tougher is just the overall gridlock that we see on Capitol Hill when it comes to any issue. And I think the problem is that there's been such a bottleneck when it comes to legislating of any kind. And, and so when there is a big moment, a big opening for some sort of big legislative bargain, or some sort of must-pass spending bill like the one that's coming next week, it just puts immense pressure on it because all of a sudden, everybody who's been denied all their chances to legislate on every issue under the sun, they're like, ooh, the window's cracked open. Let me shove my issue through <laughs> on that on yeah. that as well. And it just, you know, it, the burden is just often way too much.
1: Let's do this. Let's get another break in. And when we come back, I want to do one last uh, uh, short uh, uh, talking point about immigration. We I promised it and we didn't get to it, and that's where how's this affecting us here in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And then we're gonna move on to a few other uh, issues that are in the news right now. We'll do that with uh, Tamar Hallerman from the AJC Washington Bureau, Republican strategist Heath Garrett, and immigration attorney Charles Cook after this. On the next
0: Fresh Air, breakthroughs in our understanding of the immune system and how the body fights disease and heals itself or attacks itself, and how stress, sleep, and state of mind figure into the immune system's functioning. We talk with Daniel M. Davis, author of The Beautiful Cure. He's a professor of immunology at the University of Manchester in the UK. Join us.
1: This afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org.
0: Giving Tuesday is coming up, a day for giving back. I'm Rachel Martin, and when you donate to public radio, you can hear your gift being put to use. Picture the reporters that you've come to rely on and the neighbors who, like you, come here for news they can trust. You don't have to wait until Giving Tuesday to make a difference. Give back right now at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788.
1: And thanks. We've been talking a lot about immigration and some of the major news stories that have developed throughout the election campaign around immigration. Chuck Cook, what we haven't talked about is how this all comes home to Georgia. What what are the impacts of what we're seeing unfold on this state?
3: Well, there's there's various. First, you've got the DACA kids, there's 25,000 DACA kids here, many of whom are now in their mid-20s, some of them have college educations, many of whom were involved in political campaigns on both sides here in the governor's race. Uh, You've got TPS recipients, President Trump canceled temporary protected status for Salvadorans and Hondurans, and there are tens of thousands of them here that have been working in Georgia for 20 years that are now going to lose their work permits here in the next next six to 12 months. Uh, You've got the situation where a lot of people that have come in the border, of them are coming here to Georgia. They have family here in Georgia. Keep in mind, Georgia is a number ten destination state for immigrants in the United States, and there are large Salvadoran, Honduran, and Nicaraguan populations here in Georgia. So you see a lot of that here, which is a result. Our immigration courts are massively backlogged, and then of course you have an extraordinary economy. Uh, Agriculture is growing, uh, manufacturing is growing, services is growing, and we're simply not either educating enough people or getting enough American citizens in here to those jobs. You have a continuing demand in the growing restaurant sector and the agricultural sector and other service sectors with a great demand for labor. And so, all of these—the whole. When you talk about immigration, it literally impacts our everyday lives every single day.
2: Well, and since the Olympics, right, Atlanta and the, therefore the state of yeah. Georgia have become an international city, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, there's a great commercial we're running on. The Atlanta United game last night, talking about talent knows no borders, mm-hmm. right? And when you're looking at Coca Cola, when you're looking at the Southern Company, when you're looking at all these great financial technology companies, uh, looking at Georgia Tech and Emory and what we do with the CDC, Remarkable we are an international stuff. city. We want to attract the best talent in the world, right? Uh, Johnny Isaacson likes to say, when a graduate stu- student from India walks across the stage at Georgia Tech, we ought to staple a visa, a work visa. <laughs> To their <laughs> diploma. We want that student that we've trained here to stay here and work in Atlanta, Georgia for one of our great companies rather than go back home and compete with us from exactly abroad, right? right? Uh, and so that's why all of these immigration issues matter to us because it matters to our jobs. It matters to our economy. It matters to growing the state. And uh, we are not training enough people. We cannot train enough engineers and mathematicians uh, if we took everybody in public education today and did it. We, we need to be able to attract the best talent from around the world and illegal immigration not being solved is causing us to not let we run out of h1b yep. visas for our technology companies first week the first week they're the available, week they're available. every year rather than and all because we can't get everybody together to, to understand that issue
1: well i appreciate as we've had this discussion that you all remind me that while i always tend to focus on undocumented immigrants uh, that this issue is much much bigger than that. It is. And I appreciate that. Look, we're going to have a lot of opportunities to talk about it's immigration not going policy <laughs> in the months ahead. Uh but I really appreciate this Robust conversation about some of the things that have been happening while we've been focused on the the election cycle itself. So that's great. Let's now move on to a couple of other issues that are bubbling up in the news this week. Tomorrow you're going to have a really interesting day. Tomorrow and Wednesday, as Speaker Nancy Pelosi as as Nancy Pelosi uh, makes her final uh, bid to win the Democratic caucus support for uh, her uh, to become the the speaker once again. You had an interesting story in the AJC in which you pointed out that virtually every Democratic member of the Georgia delegation has signed up with Nancy Pelosi, said they support her, with the exception of the newest Democrat in the Georgia delegation, Lucy McBath. What's going on there?
0: Yeah, we haven't heard a peep out of her at all pretty much since she defeated Karen Handel right after uh, two days after November 6th. Um, She's been pretty quiet kind of building up her team attending freshman orientation Um, but yeah, we haven't heard anything about how she'll vote on her first, uh, her first vote when she becomes a member of Congress on January 3rd. Um, Mm -hmm. during the campaign, she, she kind of, uh, played it cool when it came to Pelosi. Remember, especially back earlier this spring, there was a big movement for, for up and coming Democrats to disavow, disavow Pelosi. They saw her as having too much baggage, too much of a political liability, um, McBath always said, hey, she wanted to see who else was going to run for speaker before making a commitment. And she never did say anything after that. Well, right now, there are no other candidates for, for speaker. So I think she's going to have a hard time voting against Pelosi. Um, right now, there's a letter uh, floating around. There were 16 Democrats who said that they were going to, that they planned to vote against Pelosi on the, the House floor on January 3rd. And Pelosi has been going around trying to uh, get individual members to flip. She's already flipped one of them. Um, and it's going to be a really tight, uh, you know, a really tight line for her to walk. She can only afford about 16 defections on the House floor in January. Um, and right now she has 15 who, who are still signed on to that letter. So it'll be a really interesting
1: few weeks. So if if a Lucy McBath, say, holds out, if she doesn't declare herself relatively soon, if she's either a latecomer to the Pelosi party or decides that she's safer voting uh, some without whoever the other candidate is, what penalty does she pay if Pelosi becomes Speaker? Does it immediately weaken her a bit in terms of what she might accomplish in the House this next session?
0: I think so. It might be kind of hard to see right off the bat, but Pelosi, you know, the, the party leader controls everything, yeah. down to the, the kinds of committee assignments that, that, a, <laughs> that a person gets. Um, You know, so McBath is a big gun control advocate, and I'm sure she wants a seat on the House Judiciary Committee, which oversees gun rights and gun control. Uh, Pelosi, if she uh, doesn't like McBath, can say, no, we're not going to put you on that committee. She can make it really hard if McBath wants to advance a specific piece of legislation for her to be able to actually get it through committee and on the floor to vote on. So it would make her life super difficult. Not only that, but when she runs for reelection in in 2020, being able to build up the, the campaign infrastructure to really get moving, um, the the D C, the House Democrat campaign arm, was really helpful to McBath as she was building up her campaign, and um, you know I think that's something that she's going to be taking into consideration in the days ahead. I, I think it'll be highly unlikely for her to vote against Pelosi.
2: Well, and I, and I think Nancy Pelosi is a shrewd operator, right? Whether you like her or don't, she she is actually uh, understands how the House works. She is looking to cut loose as many Lucy McBaths as she can of those sixteen folks, right? Mm-hmm. If she can get the votes uh, without... Uh, those folks having to vote for her, what they want to do is cut them loose so that they don't have to vote for the other person. They just don't vote for Nancy. She would much rather have those people back in 2020. Mm-hmm. If the first thing they do is violate a promise they made during the campaign not to support her, mm-hmm. then it, then that becomes it puts those uh, candidates back in jeopardy. But they're having to count votes. And then the other interesting part of the story is, right? Donald Trump has pledged his una, yeah. unabided <laughs> love, love for Nancy, Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi right? now. And, uh, you know, I might agree with him on that. Actually, we're, we're all in bipartisan spirit here. Well,
1: I look, Heath, you've been around this uh, world of politics for a very long time. So have I. This notion that you will pay a price for telling voters one thing about supporting a speaker <laughs> and then going ahead and voting for the speaker you said you wouldn't. Su- it strikes me it is really not something that's going to cause them enormous problems two years down the line. Yes, not it's an issue. in most places, issue.
2: but a
3: couple of you know, well, six maybe days in Georgia, in Georgia I right. think that could be but, a you know, problem. But like right. Lucy, right. She, Lucy didn't pledge so. not to vote for her. Lucy never said anything about it during her. She's my congresswoman. I was looking. Oh, it's her, she never said a word about this. Alright,
1: so, so, so uh, we'll watch. Am I right, though? There is a caucus vote this week, right? Isn't that right? Um, yes, there tomorrow? is. It's, yeah. Okay, okay.
0: Well, door, a closed door vote. Right. Um, right. But I think it'll be very hard for McBath to vote against yeah. Lucy. And she's created room for herself so that, you know, she can still vote for her if she wants or doesn't or not vote for her if she doesn't want to.
1: All right. Let me while we're talking about uh, up there in the northern suburbs of metro Atlanta, we uh, while we were gone for the holiday, uh, Carolyn Bordeaux conceded that Rob Woodall, after the recount of the district's votes, was uh, Woodall was the victory, won by just over 400 votes. And not only did he win re-election, tomorrow, but on the same day, at the same moment that he accepted victory, the Democrats put the biggest, fattest target on his back of almost any other member in Congress.
0: Oh, yeah. This is a district that he won, you know, ever since he came to Congress in 2010, he's been winning by more than 20 percentage points. Every year. This wasn't even, this was barely a blip on the radar this year. They thought, oh, it would be nice if we could compete here one day. But the party really didn't, the Democratic Party really didn't spend any money in Georgia 7 this year. So the fact that Bordeaux came that close within 433 votes. Um, I promise you there will be a, <laughs> a lot more money yeah. in the we, we time Woodall didn't spend
1: any money either. Yeah, Woodall <laughs> right. didn't spend anything. Bordeaux, of course, was uh, became sort of well-known because she had awesome fundraising powers, it turned out. She raised a ton of money. A ton of money. So, Heath, uh, between now and 2020, uh, the Republican legislature at the state capitol could easily look up to the 7th district and see whether or not there's a way to redraw that district so that it uh, perhaps Forsyth County is a bigger part of the district. I haven't looked at the maps. Maybe there's right. no way you can do it. And well, the question a- is whether Woodall will even run again, but... If there's ever an opportunity for gerrymandering, this would be it. <laughs> this is the this is a subject case, right? I could see the sixth and the seventh district yeah. changing,
2: uh, doing it that way. And the other thing we gotta look at, Stacey Abrams overperformed Hillary Clinton. All over the state of Georgia and in the 6th and 7th district. Brian Kemp and we as all Republicans underperformed Donald Trump's numbers, not and Johnny Isaacson's numbers from twenty sixteen. Republicans, some Republicans sat on their hands not thinking that those two seats could get lost could be lost. Uh, one was and one almost was. And of course, Rob Woodall did not run a race. Uh, he didn't raise a lot of money. Television went up four days before the election, which was too late. Uh, so it's going to both of those districts are going to be in full campaign mode starting again yesterday.
1: All right. Um, we are just about out of time. At, at the very top of the show, I mentioned that we we're going to talk about an interesting lawsuit that's been filed in the lieutenant governor's election, mm-hmm. the outcome of that election, there is a, a, a voting rights organization who contends in a lawsuit they filed that there may have been problems with the machines because there was an undercount in that particular race far greater than any other race on the ballot. We're not going to have a chance to get to that today. But you know what? That's a great subject for us to take mm-hmm. up on tomorrow's show we're also going to talk about the mississippi special election u.s senate a race that has great implications here in the south we'll talk about that and a lot more tomorrow on political rewind um so stay with us for that uh tamar hallerman always a pleasure to have you on from washington uh chuck cook thank you for being here and heath garrett A pleasure to be with you today as well. Thank you all for listening to uh, Rewind today. We're reading some of your comments on Facebook Live. Thanks for an engaged conversation on Facebook. See you all tomorrow again at 2 o'clock.